0: Hi everyone, I am enjoying the balmy winter of Western Australia this month, so I've prepared a rerun of one of the show's most downloaded episodes from last year. This is a conversation with Iori Forsyth, who along with her siblings and parents were part of a reality TV show in Japan for 10 years. She talks to me about the experience of growing up in front of cameras, what it was like being the only girl in a family of seven brothers, and grappling with her bicultural identity being Australian on one side and Japanese on the other. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today, Yordi. You've been so busy, haven't you? <laughs> like finishing up with work and... Like packing up your life, basically, because you're moving back to Australia soon, right?
1: Yep. It's been super stressful. Um, So I've spent the last couple of months just kind of getting ready, finishing off work, just finishing off my life in Japan, basically. So I have a couple more weeks uh, in Japan and, yeah, I'm off to Australia, which is really exciting but a little bit stressful during this
0: time yeah, <laughs> in the well, world. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so, I mean, I guess people will be able to hear, but you have a bit of an Australian accent as well. So Australia yeah. is actually kind of also your home, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I have two home countries, which is, which is really nice. So my mother is Japanese and my father is Australian. And I kind of grew up in both countries. So I've been going back and forth between Japan and Australia. I'd say probably my base has been Japan. So my family has always been based in Japan up until a few years ago. But obviously my, my father, who is Australian, he didn't he also wanted us kids to, to be Australian. So they used to kind of send us uh, to Australia, kind of like a study abroad opportunity. We would go into a local school, we would go into a homestay. And experience life uh, as an Australian. So yeah, we kind of grew up in both Japan and Australia. I call both of my countries home, I guess. But for the last eight years after finishing university, I've I've been working in Japan. And yeah, my next career stage, I've decided that I wanted to to move to Australia for however long it may be. But it just so happens to be during this. Difficult time in the world, but you've got to do what you are going to do, so.
0: Yeah, what made you want to make that decision to take the next, I guess, stage of your life mm. and move it to Australia?
1: So, ever since I was really young, I've always had this dream of being a bridge between my two home countries. I've always said it since I can remember. Like, if people ask me what my dream job was, I would just say, oh, I want to... Build, be a bridge between Japan and Australia. So, being in a job doing that, I think, involves me actually experiencing my career both in Japan and Australia. And because I've kind of grew up going between those two countries, it's kind of been natural for me to move between the two every so often. And this time I just mentioned that I've been, you know, I've been, I'm in my eighth year in Tokyo at the moment. And this is actually the longest time I've ever spent in one place in my whole life. And initially, when I first finished university and I moved to Japan to start my career, I was, in my head, I was thinking maybe two to five years, five years max. And then, it, you know, it's been so good. I've, I had a really good job. I had a really great time in Tokyo. And it's been, you know, almost eight years. And I think it just made me realize that I, I need to move forward in my next step in my career. I couldn't get, I didn't want to get too comfortable in one place. Um, if I really wanted to, you know, be the real bridge between Japan and Australia, I think I really wanted to experience my career in both countries. And, you know, I finished my first stage in Japan, and I just thought it was the perfect time to to move to Australia. So I'll be doing, uh, I guess, a similar kind of career path, but from the Australian point of view. So my first job out of university, uh In Japan I was actually working for the Queensland government in Japan so I didn't actually know that Australian state governments had an office in Japan but when I was finishing uni I was kind of googling I knew that I wanted to to spend my first few years out of university in in Japan working in Japan and I was kind of googling options and I was looking at Australian embassies different kind of government offices Uh, I was looking at government because it's kind of kind of a broad you know area to work on and I came across the trade and investment office which is part of the Queensland government and I saw that they had an office in Tokyo and my father is from Queensland and I did most of my study abroad in Queensland even though I was born in Victoria my father is from Queensland so I kind of sent a message to the the big boss of the Tokyo office asking for an internship way back when eight years ago. Um, And yeah, that's how I started my internship at the trade and investment office of the Queensland government in Tokyo. And it's been uh, just over seven years coming up to my eighth year working there. It's been really, really great. I've worked in different sectors, including food and agri. My latest sector, I was working on the education, the international education sector. So basically promoting Queensland as the place to study abroad for Japanese students. And this time I'm moving back to Australia. I'm moving to Sydney uh, this month. I actually have uh, two reasons that I'm going. I actually, I'm planning to start my postgraduate degree. So I'm uh, applying for my MBA over there, part-time MBA, and looking at the moment, looking uh, for work in the same industry, um, doing interviews and things like that. So, I mean, I grew up in small towns both in Japan and Australia but Tokyo obviously is one of the biggest cities in the world and I kind of became a city girl during my time here and when I was thinking of the different cities to go back to in Australia I think Sydney was just kind of an easy option for me. I think it's a really similar uh, vibe to, to Tokyo from what I know so I just thought it would be a comfortable move um, for me and you know having some family there as well it was just a really natural decision for me
0: yeah for sure okay so if we go all the way back then so you were born in australia and then you moved to japan like do you want to like explain the sort of back and forth that you went through over the course (laughs) of your childhood and growing up
1: it's funny because i don't actually remember so this is because i was so young and i've just done so much of this traveling you know between japan and australia i don't actually remember the details but From what I know, um, from what my parents have told me, I was born in Australia and I moved back to Japan when I was about six months old to my mother's hometown in Hiroshima. And then as far as I know, we moved back to Australia when I was about five years old. And then after a few years, my parents decided to move back to Japan again. And we went to Japan and I started primary school in Japan. And that's when we, we kind of based ourselves in Japan. My, my parents started their business in Japan. So my next trip to Australia, I was in year three. And that was without my parents. It was just myself. And I went to Australia for a couple of months and lived with my godmother. I did schooling there for a few months and then I went back to Japan and then after a few years, I think it was in year five, that was my kind of my first long study abroad experience and I went with my brother and I went to my, my father's hometown in Queensland and we lived with my father's high school friend with my host family at the time and me and my brother spent about a year in Australia doing primary school and then we went back And then I think my next trip was in year seven, which is kind of the same as junior high school year one, I guess, in Japan. And then I think somewhere in year eight or nine. See, I don't really remember because it's just all blurred. And then year 10 and 11 was also done in Australia. And then after finishing year 11, uh, I went back to Japan to finish off my high school. So I actually did four years of high school. I repeated one year, uh, just so that that I don't get too behind on my studies I repeated year 11 which is junior high uh, which is high school year two in Japan and then yeah after I finished high school in Japan I went to Australia to do university and then and then Japan for my career and so on and so forth so very complicated um
0: yeah a lot of back and forth did you remember a lot of back and forth ever feeling quite disrupted by going back and forth all the time it's
1: interesting because I get asked that a lot. But to be honest, that's kind of all I knew. So that was my normal. Um, obviously, I got homesick a lot when I was in Australia. You know, there were times that I really, really missed my family and I wanted to see my mum and dad and be with my family. But for me, kind of that feeling was just normal. It just happens so often that for me, it, it, like by the time I was in year five, It was kind of like, oh, it's that time of my life again that I'm leaving home (laughs) and I'm going abroad. I mean, it's a bit sad, but I mean, there are good and bad things, I think, um, in in any situation. But for me, I think I really embraced uh, that opportunity.
0: And it's quite a unique opportunity because I don't think most people who are biracial would spend so much time in both countries that. Their parents are from how did you fare with like the language because you're fluent in both English and Japanese hey
1: yeah I get asked a lot as well but I think because my parents gave me a pretty balanced opportunity to live in Japan and Australia I think I was able to kind of balance my both of my Japanese and English language as well I'd say probably up until I was either junior high school or high school I did feel more comfortable in Japanese I think mostly because I spoke Japanese with my brothers and my family, with my mum. And in my family, my dad was really the only one I was speaking English to. For that reason I think I kind of felt like I was a little bit more comfortable in in Japanese. And also up until I was new eight, I did I was put into ESL, so English as a second language class for a a while because I did, you know, keep forgetting English at times. And I was treated, I guess, as an international student at times because I I was, you know, the girl that's from Japan. I was living with a host family. Um, A lot of people kind of treated me as the exchange student from Japan sometimes, even though, you know, I have Australian citizenship and, you know, I am technically Australian. So at times I did feel like maybe I was more Japanese than I was Australian. But I think, in high school, or maybe university, I kind of felt like I truly balanced language ability between Japan, Japanese and Australian English. <laughs> I mentioned I'm from a really small kind of town in Australia and very, very... Kind of whitewashed, very Aussie oka kind of area of Australia. So that's kind of where I picked up my Aussie accent, I think.
0: Yeah, what was that like for you? As like a half Japanese, half Australian person, kind of growing up in like—is it would you say rural Australia or small town Australia? Yeah, kind of like, kind
1: of like the countryside. I guess I lived on a farm during my exchange, not exchange, but during my study abroad time. I lived on a farm and I was milking cows in the morning, so very, very <laughs> r- rural area. <laughs>
0: yeah, okay. Yeah, what was that experience like? Because I don't imagine there had been that many other kids like yourself.
1: No, there was no one, absolutely no one. And that goes for Japan as well because I, did gr- I grew up in Hiroshima in Japan and, you know, in the mountainous parts of Hiroshima as well. So I actually, in a way, felt a little bit more foreign in Japan than in Australia because I do get told that I – even though I am half Asian, I come across as white, more white, I guess. So people in Australia don't usually notice me as kind of Asian until I mention my name or I mention my background. And they're kind of like, oh, oh, you, you have Japanese in you. I didn't realise, I, I guess you look a, you know, a little exotic kind of thing. So, But in Japan, obviously, because I do look gaijin, which is a, a foreigner, I did get kind of treated more like a foreigner in Japan uh, by people who maybe don't know me um, and I kind of had to prove myself as Japanese so it's it's really interesting even though Japan was technically my home country in a way because my my family lived there sometimes I felt like a foreigner in Japan more so than I did in Australia just because of the way I look.
0: What do you mean by like people would treat you differently knowing or... In Japan. Yeah.
1: Well, first of all, they would always speak to me in English at first. They would try their best to speak to me in English because they would assume that I don't speak Japanese or they would assume that I was a tourist or something. So that the first thing a new person would say to me is, ah, oh, hello, uh, where are you from? And then I'd answer my perfect Japanese saying, ah, oh, I'm from Hiroshima. <laughs> and they will look really, really confused. And, you know, little things like if I go to convenience, they wouldn't give me... a me chopsticks they would give me fork because they would assume that you know i don't use chopsticks so that that's kind of what they do for, to foreign guests and things like that if i go to a restaurant they would purposely give me the english menu instead of the japanese menu so just little things like that in a business context they always just in with the japanese business cards usually one side of the business card is japanese and one side of the business card is english and every time because i was kind of in a sales role i had a lot of time exchanging business cards in Japan and I swear about 90% of the time they would give me the English side of their business card thinking that I, you know, I'm not able to speak Japanese. So just little things like that kind of made me feel sometimes like I'm not completely treated as Japanese. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, once they knew that I was Japanese, once they kind of got to know me, there were, there were no problems, but I think it's just that first encounter um, is usually really difficult in Japan because I just look, I just don't look Japanese, apparently.
0: Have you always felt like that's just been just a part of your life or how did it make you feel to have to constantly overcome that first hurdle?
1: It was really difficult in Japan when I was younger, actually, because I I do remember when I was maybe in primary school, sometimes I I would pretend that I couldn't speak English just to try and prove that I was Japanese. So, you know, if people would come up to me and try and speak to me in English, I would just—I would say, "Oh, I don't know what you're saying. I don't speak English at all. I'm—I'm I'm Japanese." Like it, it really, really bothered me as a child, and even at school. I mean, I had friends, and they knew that I was Japanese, but there was always that—you know—kids would say, "Oh, can you speak English? I want to hear you speak English," and that really, really bothered me because I felt like I was just treated differently. I think it changed in junior high school because I, I'm not sure if you're aware, but in Japan, being half foreign or half white, uh, half is kind of considered in a way very, I don't know, not prestigious, but people kind of look up to half of people because, you know, they see celebrities on TV, models who are half white and Asian, and, you know, they're portrayed as, you know, very beautiful and things like that. So a lot of people have this image of, you know, half Japanese, half, half foreign or half white being this really good, Role model, and I think that kind of started changing in junior high school because people started saying, Oh, I'm so I wish I was half too, like I'm really jealous of you for being you know half two, and things like that. So, yeah, that was really interesting. Change and I yeah, distinctly remember when that kind of started changing. I'm not sure if it's an age thing or if it was a generation thing or if that's you know when Japanese people started you know changing their perspectives or if there were more representation on TV, so kind of. Biracial people, but yeah, I do distinctly remember that change.
0: And what about in Australia? I guess because people kind of just assumed you were white. Did you feel like you fit in more in Australia when you were there?
1: I did. I did actually. It's really interesting. I think it's, it's just it's really because of how I look, and also in Australia, it's a very multicultural country. So even though I came from a very kind of whitewashed area, there were Kind of Asian, you know, Australians with Asian backgrounds. My best friend in Australia is half kind of Chinese, Mauritian, and she happened to be my closest friend at school. And we were the only two Asians at school, even though we were only half Asians. We were the two Asians at school, um, and we would pretend like we were sisters, and people like we don't <laughs> we look nothing alike, by the way, yeah. but we could we could trick people into thinking that we were actual sisters just because we were um, half Asian. But apart from that, I think, yeah, as I said, I'm quite white passing in a way. So unless I kind of talk about my background or my name is very Japanese, my name is a samurai name, actually, Iori. And it's really hard to pronounce. Um, It's I-O-R-I. And people would look at the name and not be able to pronounce it. So we'd always get into a conversation about, oh, what? how do you pronounce your name? And I'd kind of go... And explain about you know how it's a Japanese name and old, old style Japanese name, and then they would ask, "Oh, are you Japanese?" And blah blah blah. Yeah, actually, so,
0: I didn't actually think about that because I guess for people who aren't familiar with Japanese or aren't or maybe don't speak other languages, like they'd probably look at your name and be like, "Iori." Yeah,
1: it's either Iori or they they, they see the I as an L and they think it's Lori. Oh, God. <laughs> I get worried <laughs> a lot.
0: <laughs> oh, no. Okay, so overall then, like how or rather do you feel like you had a lot of identity crisis or confusion as you were growing up? For
1: sure, for <laughs> sure. I actually grew up thinking I had two personalities, to be honest, up until I was in junior high school. I, I felt like I was a different person in Japan and Australia and maybe because that was me trying to fit in as I said I was trying in Japan I was trying my best to see Japanese and do all the things that Japanese people like to do and you know try and fit in and I was doing the exact same thing in in Australia when I left Japan and went to Australia for the few years during my schooling I kind of noticed that you know I had a gap in knowledge of what teenagers were into and things like that and it kind of made me feel like You know, I needed to kind of relearn what all the teenagers were into. And and things that teenagers were into were so different in Japan and Australia. From fashion, I distinctly remember in year 10. You know, year 10, you're trying to fit in and you're like, you know, trying to look cool and make friends and things like that. I brought all my clothes from Japan and none of them. Like, I was really embarrassed at how my my Japanese-style clothes were just so different in Australia like I don't know I guess at the time in Japan all these like frilly clothes were really popular in Japan and that's the kind of clothes i owned and when I took that to Australia like I just I just looked like I was an anime character (laughs) or something and people would comment on like how frilly my clothes were and at the time like this you know kind of like simple cool looking clothes were popular in Australia you know I just did not fit in and I felt so embarrassed at year 10 camp I just had no clothes that I felt comfortable in and just little things like that I think it just made me feel like I don't know I was a like different person and I felt like I was I had a different personality as well I got told a lot in Japan that I had an you know outgoing personality and I was very very talkative in Japan and they're like oh you know that's because you're half foreign you have this you know person, big persona but in Australia I was a shy girl I was the shy girl in Australia and that confused me so much I don't know if, it, if I was a shy, shy girl because I guess a lot of I think more Australians are kind of like outspoken out, out, outgoing than Japanese people and I just felt like I couldn't kind of compete with that and I just kind of shied away or if it was a language barrier or what it was but I just didn't feel as comfortable as being like the center of attention like I was in Japan and I remember I was so confused I was like what has what's <laughs> happening to me like what what's going on like why am I a different person
0: did you ever talk to your parents or with your siblings about this
1: I don't I don't really think I talked to my parents about it too much but yeah definitely my siblings they definitely went through a very similar or same experience as me, and I'm so glad I had them with me to talk about because otherwise I just would have kind of kept it to myself. But I, I have seven brothers, actually, for those who are fighting out for the first. Yes. I, so I, have, I come from a very big family. You have a family. huge family. <laughs> yes, yes. So I'm actually the oldest of eight children, and also I'm the only girl. So I have seven younger brothers. And we're very, very, we're very close. So most of the time when I went to Australia to study, I kind of went with some of my brothers. So we stayed in the same host family. And, yeah, we did talk about this a lot because we were going through kind of the same emotions, difficulties at school or whatever, both in Japan and Australia. And we would talk about that a lot. And it really helped me overcome that because, you know, we went to the same school. So it was really good to have someone at school who was going through the same kind of emotions and going through the same situation I didn't feel like I was alone
0: yeah yeah definitely I think that's great that you guys had each other and I will get on to more questions about your family in a sec but I wonder now like do you feel like you still have this these two personas or do you feel like you've kind of managed to successfully merge them into one
1: (sighs) It's interesting because I've actually thought about this a lot because I do get asked about this and I do have opportunities to talk about this. But I feel like since I moved to Tokyo was when it really changed because, as I mentioned, in Japan and Australia, I was living in a very countryside a remote area and there literally were no one like me. Like I didn't know many half Japanese, half foreign people. I was kind of like the odd one out, sticking out in my friend group and. But in Japan, in Tokyo, there's just so many people like me. And I was just so pleasantly surprised when I first moved here because so many people around me I realized were, you know, had similar backgrounds to me. And that's when I first heard the term third culture. And I realized that's kind of like where I belonged. I'm a third culture kid. I mean, I feel like I do, in a way, belong. In both, you know, the Japanese culture and the Australian culture, but there's definitely this third culture that only kind of biracial or half children, or maybe children who are, you know, raised in different countries, have like feel or have or identify with. And I think that's really helped me kind of merge those two personalities together. Just know, just you know, hanging out with with like-minded people and people who who have experienced kind of similar things as me. So I think in that process, and and I'm saying that this is in the last decade, you know, last five to 10 years, that I've finally been able to kind of embrace both of my identities in, in one.
0: And is that why you're so passionate also about being that bridge between Japan and Australia, but also about, I guess, talking about biculturalism and being bilingual and all that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, I think just, you know, having experienced that from a very young age and I really do enjoy talking about it to people and people are really interested in that topic as well. Like I do get a lot of questions about it and I really, really enjoy talking about it. I'm, I'm very passionate about it and I I didn't realise how many of us are out there. Like I really didn't notice until I moved to Tokyo that there are people like me out there and so many people like me out there. There are so many international marriages these days. I just wasn't living in an area where that was kind of prominent. But as soon as I realized that there were so many people like me, and also parents of you know young half of children who who actually are really int- like they want to raise their children comfortably, um, and they want their children to be you know bilingual and bicultural, but maybe because they they didn't experience that themselves, they don't really know what to do or how to go about that, and. Yeah, and that's I think why I really enjoy talking about that and and and, and really passionate about that. So, yeah. yeah.
0: I I find that super interesting as well because sometimes I do think like if I have my own children, they would be bicultural as well and I I'd, I'd want them to be bilingual but also to fully embrace both aspects of their heritage. But I think it's such a struggle, especially not to lose one part of your background, especially when you're growing up, for example, primarily in like a Western society or something, and it doesn't maybe meet the values that you might hold in your other culture. Like, what what do you think are some of the most important things or tools that you think parents should keep in mind if they are raising a multicultural family?
1: (laughs) You know, for me, I think I was just really lucky, you know, being able to kind of be both Australian and Japanese. And that's truly because my parents actually decided to place me or physically place me in both of these cultures. It's it's actually, it's not impossible, but it's really difficult to, you know, teach your children the language and the culture of a country or a Language and culture of a different, different, you know, culture. When you're living in a completely different country, like there are so many families out there who are struggling to, you know, raise their children bilingual and bicultural. Obviously, the easiest way is to do what my parents did and, you know, send send your kids away, um, ship your kids away to a different country. But I know it's not possible for for everyone. It's not. It's it's not a financially thing to do to you know, there's flights involved and there's education fees and things like that and homestay fees are, are really expensive and sometimes it's not easy to just kind of move, you know, your whole family from one country to the other. I'm finding it really difficult just moving myself from Japan <laughs> to Australia yeah. right now, let yeah. alone a whole family. So yeah. it, it really isn't an easy thing to do. So You know, it really depends on the language ability of the parents as well um, and where you're living. So whether you're living in Japan or a foreign country or whether your parents are also bilingual and things like that, it really depends on the situation you're in. But I actually recently, um, so my family has a YouTube channel actually and we recently did a video just on that. So how to raise your children bilingual and bicultural from our perspective of being bilingual and bicultural. I actually did an Instagram survey before we we shot that video and I included that in my video. And, you know, we had such an overwhelming response. So many comments on that YouTube video when we talked about that. Just people being like, oh, you know, I'm so glad you're talking about this. I don't really know. Like, I have young children who are, you know, half Japanese and half foreign. And, uh, you know, I was wondering how to raise my children um, in both cultures, and you, you know, you answered my question. Thank you so much. So it just re- made me realize how, you know, how many people are, you know, struggling with that and you know wanting to know answers. I don't think there's, I don't think there's one answer. There, there's several ways to do this, but, um, yeah, it really depends on the situation your family is in. But yeah, if anyone is interested, yeah, there's a YouTube video out there talking exactly about that. So
0: nice. What's your um, YouTube channel name?
1: I actually, we actually need to make an English channel name because we it's, it's a completely Japanese channel right. name. Okay, okay. And I really, <laughs> really got asked that, but I will say it in in Japanese: "Daikakoku care. <laughs> <laughs> um, it just means <laughs> it just means the big Forsyth family, but right. in Japanese. So yeah.
0: I can um yeah, that I'll
1: reminds put, me, I should.
0: I can put a link in the episode description yeah. so people can can find it there. You already mentioned earlier that you're the only woman in a family of seven (laughs) or no eight siblings seven so you have seven brothers what was that like growing up
1: you know again I get asked this question a lot but for me that was normal so I don't really know what it's like to not have seven brothers so I have nothing to compare it to to be honest so for me that's just the way it was and it was how I was raised. And it was it was normal to me to have so many brothers. But, of course, I've always wanted a sister. Like, every time my mum was pregnant, I would just I would beg for a sister. Like, I remember so many times I would just pray that I had a sister. But every time I was a boy. But I, I would consider probably my brothers maybe my best friends as well because I do talk about everything and anything with them. To be honest, I... I'm 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 really glad that I was raised in a really big family. I think it made us tighter and stronger as a family, as a unit and it was just a really, really great experience and it's just so good to you know, live with friends basically. It just felt like sleepovers every day.
0: <laughs> at yeah. Home. Was it something that was just quite natural for all of you to get along together? Or like did your parents put a lot of emphasis on that or how did that work?
1: yeah I wonder I think we all have pretty similar personalities so we never not got along I don't not that I remember obviously we had little fights and you know every single siblings have fights we had a few of those but the things I could think of like I think they really emphasized at least when the older kids were younger so that the older four kids we weren't really allowed to have games at home they would really encourage us to to play at, outside. And things like that, and that may have helped, you know, get out of our shell and kind of like being outside and playing together. And I used to catch insects with my brothers, and and maybe some, you know, things that maybe typical girls would really do. But that was pretty much my only option at the time, was to do what my brothers were doing, which was, you know, playing soccer or catching insects or catching little animals or things like that. You know, we had rules, and we all had to be at home for dinner and sit at the same table, and you know. And eat dinner together and talk about. And the TV was always off during dinner, so they made sure that we were having conversations with each other. And in Japan, we lived in a really small house, so we actually only had three bedrooms between eight children. So we all shared a bedroom, so we didn't really have any private space. So that might have had something to do with it as well. Like we just had to, we always constantly had someone around.
0: What was that? like being the only female with so many brothers like especially when you were going through you know your own thing with like puberty and stuff like who did you talk to and like did you feel like you could talk to your brothers about all that stuff
1: actually yeah I did talk to my brothers about probably too much (laughs) (laughs) um I think it kind of helped in a way especially like you know when you're talking about your love life I'm talking about the crush I have at school like I actually had brothers to talk to about and hearing about a boy's point of view kind of thing. I don't know. I just felt like I didn't, I never felt like I couldn't talk to anyone. You know, interestingly, I never really felt like I was the odd one out in my family. My my parents treated me exactly the same um, as my brothers. And not that I felt like a boy, but I just, I never really felt like I was different to, to everyone else. And I'm, a, I'm quite an open person in general, so I did share a lot about, you know, my secrets and my life and things like that and what I was feeling um, to my brothers. And I still do, to be honest, but it's just always been that way. That's might, so yes, awesome yes. that all
0: of you get along so well with each other. Because, you know, even, like, in smaller families, like, even if there's only, like, two, like, a brother and a sister or, like, just two of you, sometimes it's just not meant to be. Like, you just don't get along. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I wonder if it. I wonder if it, if if it is a personality thing, or if it is because we have, you know, so many siblings. I don't know what it was, but we are definitely very, very close, and we all get along really well. And when we're together, it's just such a good time. Still, at the moment, I'm actually living with my brother for so the last two months of my Japan life. I kind of um I've been living in my brother's house, and it's just been the the best time.
0: Is it's that the one, one who keeps all the reptiles?
1: With... Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he has about a hundred animals in his house, mostly reptiles. But yeah, I have an animal crazy brother, and I'm sleeping every night in the animal room. So I'm actually I'm actually recording this in the animal room as well. So I have reptiles all around me at the moment,
0: like snakes. <laughs> Like spiders yep. as well or cockroaches? No, spiders. Okay.
1: Um, yeah, cockroaches um, are for the reptiles. So the cockroaches are food. But oh, if right. You have uh, two snakes, like lizard type type of like lizards and something dragon, water dragons and frogs and a lot of reptiles like that. But we also have little cute fluffy animals like rabbits and hedgehogs and dogs and things like that as well. So they're not all scary animals. It's not that <laughs> Makes it scary, but people, you know, tend to think yeah. that reptiles are a little bit scarier than little fluffy
0: animals. But. Yeah. What do you think? Are the biggest things that you've learned from your brothers, and the biggest things that they have learned from you as well.
1: Hmm. That's a very interesting question that I've never been asked before. <laughs> but I think it's just—I think it's really important to be there for each other. You know, when we're when we're going through things, it's just. Always good to have someone there uh, for support or someone to talk to. So, when I was going through a really hard time and when my brothers knew that I was going through a really hard time, they made sure they canceled their plans to be with me and, you know, talk to me made sure I was, you know, I was feeling good. And when my brother, when I see my brothers struggling through things or they're going through a really hard time, like I always make sure that I'm there for them. I always make sure that, you know, they, they can approach me anytime to talk about it or I'm there to you know, give them advice and things like that. And it's really, really helped us through so many different, you know, hard situations as well. It's, it's, You know, it's taught me to to be more genuine to people, to be there for people, to, you know, to give a helping hand to people because, you know, it's always good to have, you know, your support network at all times, I think.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think the kind of relationship that you have with your brothers is honestly – something that a lot of people search their entire lives for whether that's like their family or like their friends so I think it's really special that you guys share that connection
1: yeah I'm very lucky I'm yeah I'm very lucky I think
0: so another really unique thing that I, I found out about you is that you guys yeah. <laughs> used to have your own tv show <laughs> oh yeah we did <laughs> yeah so, T- tell me yes, all about that
1: so in Japan, interestingly, there's a genre of TV for big families. So there is a you know, genre for TV shows that kind of follow around big families, kind of, I guess, like the Kardashians. I don't really like to compare myself <laughs> with, compare my family with the Kardashians, but that's kind of the only Western example I can think of. But, you know, big families are a really fascinating thing, apparently, in Japan, and when... My mother used to have write a blog back in the day when my youngest brother was just born. She started this blog kind of documenting her journey of being a mother of eight. And I think that's where we started getting attention from you know, TV crews. And we started having you know, TV people come into our home and kind of filming us. So we kind of grew up with this, this TV crew following us around. Um, I think the first one that I remember was, you know, maybe in primary school, and yeah, they'll kind of document our lives, and it was a documentary-style TV show, and they would film us for months and months, and then they would have a two-hour wide, two-hour TV show at the end of the year, kind of of my family. So that went on until 2012, and it only kind of stopped because we all grew up and left home and went to uni and things like that, and it was kind of no longer a a big family TV show. But, yeah, for the longest time, we had TV crews following us around, Different, different productions, different TV productions, actually. So we had different companies or different TV shows following us around. But I remember about maybe five or six, uh, different ones and also that kind of like spinned into different like quiz shows that we went on sometimes as well and really we you know really fun stuff we had to we went on a quiz show where we had to learn all of the names of every country in the world and they would quiz us and if we got it right we, we, we won something we did fun things like that as well but Yeah, that was kind of part of our lives as well um, when I was growing up, which was really interesting, yeah.
0: How old were you when they first started filming you guys?
1: Uh, I was probably early junior high school, maybe 12 or 13 was when it really started. And then it finished in 2012. I was already in my 20s when they stopped filming. Yeah.
0: Do you remember what it was like like suddenly having all these camera crews follow, following you around?
1: It was fun, actually. <laughs> we really enjoyed it. Oh, we, we, like, we, were, we were a very open family and we liked, we liked the attention. <laughs> my, my brothers and I really liked the attention. So we kind of enjoyed the camera crew being around. We liked doing, you know, similar things on camera and watching ourselves on TV was always really interesting. And, you know, having people notice us on the street was just really exciting. Sometimes there was too much. Like they actually put a camera on the corner of our room and the TV crew, crew would leave the house, but the camera will still be running. So they were kind of like filming us 24-7 almost. So sometimes maybe that felt like it was a bit too much. But in general, yeah, we really, really, really embraced it and enjoyed it, to be honest. It was a, it was a really fun part of going up with of crews following us around.
0: So they just let you get on with your day kind of thing like they wouldn't kind of suggest scenarios for you? Well for
1: example like if we have birthdays coming up um, and if you have close birthdays coming up they will come suggest like maybe we should do like a few different birthday parties all in one so that they can film a party you know in one shot or you know sometimes they'll suggest we go out on an outing um, if we kind of Said something in passing, they'll be like, "Oh, so about that, we should really, really do that." And they'll like really encourage us to actually do something. Or you know, there were a few times that they suggested us do things that we maybe wouldn't have done if the TV crew weren't there. But nothing, nothing too forceful, like nothing too extravagant. They didn't make us do things we didn't want to do. Um, but I did hear that I think my parents kind of there were other TV crews that kind of wanted to film us but wanted to force us to do things, and I think my parents kind of filtered them out. So we only really experienced the good side of being on TV. I think my parents were pretty good at filtering those kind of bad ones out.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's good. And did you get recognised a lot growing up then?
1: Yeah. Back in the day, I think, especially in Jerusalem, as I said, we grew up in a, a kind of a smaller town, um, and we were already quite – Noticeable because of how we look, because you know we're half Australian, also because we're a big family. So when we're walking on the street with ten of us <laughs> we're already noticeable as it is. Yeah. So and then when we started going on TV, I think in Hiroshima, we were, I would say we were quite famous, maybe at, at at one point, maybe in when I was in junior high school up until high school in Japan, um, we did get noticed on the street, but. Yeah, not so much in Tokyo. I don't really find when I moved to Tokyo after finishing university, there weren't many times I was recognized on the streets. So, yeah, back in the day, I think there were times when we felt like we were famous.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because I remember when we started following each other on Instagram and I looked at your profile and I was like, why does she have so many followers? (laughs) Like, is she like a (laughs) low-key celeb or something?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so when people ask me why I have so many followers, I kind of have to explain myself. Oh, you know, my family used to be on tv and you know they want to know more and so I've had yeah and I kind of like talking about it. it's not something that I hide or anything like that so it's kind of a part of my past that I really embrace and really enjoy talking about so it's completely fine but definitely I get so many funny reactions from that uh you know from people I meet that you know don't know me as you know from tv it's a very funny conversation that I have with
0: them And does it give you more understanding or empathy towards, um, I guess, other people who have grown up under the spotlight?
1: Yeah, especially I feel like in Japanese TV, people really place, like their personal life gets exposed so much. I guess, you know, all over the world with celebrities and I feel like you know, some things should be kept private. Like why why do they have to be forced to you know, announce very, very personal things? Um, but that's just, you know, sometimes when, you know, you're on T V and you feel like you have the responsibility to, to show absolutely everything, um, of your life and I sometimes feel like you know, I feel sorry for them that they have to do that. In my family we didn't we weren't at that level. Like we didn't we could choose, I guess, what to Showing what not to show. We didn't become, you know, that level of famous where we just had to share absolutely everything that we did. But when I see that, I feel like, you know, there needs to be a little bit more balance, I think, with, you know, what you can show and what you, you know, want to show.
0: Yeah, I'm quite interested in hearing your thoughts on, you know, the whole Terrace House thing that happened. Was it last year or the year before now? Yeah, that
1: was last year, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah.
0: Like... Me, for me personally, because I was such an avid follower of Terrace House, and I just, yeah, I can't watch it anymore (laughs) after that happened.
1: Yeah, I know. All about the editing, hey, like, yeah, I watched Terrace House like crazy um, that time as well, and I was so affected by all that that happened. And I feel like, yeah, definitely the way they edited, you know, certain things and things, and, you know, obviously she was getting so much backlash on Twitter and social media, you know, they were showing, you know, one bit of, you know, maybe a fight that she had on TV, on screen, oh, I felt, I felt so sick when, when all that happened, and it really made me think, you know, about how, because at the time we had just started um, our YouTube channel, my family started their YouTube channel and I'm responsible for the editing of that as well. And it really made me think, you know, being on the editing side of video is like how much that affects viewers and, you know, how how people see you and, and things like that. And it just really made me rethink on, you know, how to portray yourself um, on social media and on TV and just... In, in, in in, in the public
0: eye yeah and i guess for your youtube channel um you're able to control that narrative right but Mm, like mm. in terrace house situation i think it's really important also to think about the effect of how you portray people like the effect on them yeah
1: yeah they definitely have you know, an agenda and a message that they wanted to portray. They wanted, you know, they wanted the drama. They wanted the views. They knew that, you know, putting little fights and little dramas on TV would get the views. And I think they weren't really thinking about the actual people on there and, you know, how much backlash they would get on their personal, you know, social media page, you know, when they're thinking about, you know, their show. But, yeah. It was it was a really sad situation, and I, and I hope that whole situation just kind of you know changed the way everyone in that industry thinks. Especially, I think it's really prominent in, in on Japanese TV. I feel like yeah, you know, they don't really think about the celebrities and the and the people on screen and their well-being enough um, when they when they edit and you know portray on TV, and that goes for not only Terrorist House, but you know other other TV shows as well. I feel like.
0: I just realized I should probably clarify what we're actually talking about when we say the Terrace House incident. So basically Terrace House is a reality TV show, a Japanese reality TV show, um, where they put, is it six strangers together into one house? Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: three boys, three girls.
0: Yeah, and just, I guess, see how they go. But there's definitely a strong narrative towards romance, hey? Like, trying to, like, pair people up. Um, And so basically... There was an incident in the most recent season where like, she was a pro-wrestler, right?
1: Pro-wrestler. Yeah, yeah.
0: and one of the guys in the house had accidentally washed her costume and ruined it. Mm. And then the scene was like she got real mad at him. And I think it later came out that the the producers had like kind of forced her to act like that. Yeah, I
1: heard that. Yeah,
0: so basically because of that out burst there were a lot of people on social media kind of criticizing her and mm. she was such a nice girl from what i could yeah. see but i think she took yes, all of that well, really she, to heart
1: she, she, and she, then, she's person, yeah and then
0: yeah and then she ended up taking her own life but then all these details started coming out about how the producers of the show kind of coerced her into behaving a certain way and like not really offering the kind of support to the, mm. the cast for me personally, like Terrace House will never, ever be the same ever again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can't watch it anymore either, knowing you know how that was all done in the background. And I actually, interestingly, I actually have a few friends who were on Terrace House and I've heard firsthand from them as well on how, you know, they were forced to say things and, you know, she was portrayed in a certain way and how she didn't want to and things like that. So I, I have heard personally from Terrace House members and, and it was yeah, it was a time it was interesting because my one of my brothers at the time was thinking of applying to be on Paris House just before that incident happened. Actually, I think he may, may have sent in an application already at that point.
0: It's yeah, it's pretty horrible and it just proves like nothing is real. And also like on the other side of things, like people really need to be more aware of what they say to people, like especially people they don't even know. Um, just because you put yourself in the public eye doesn't mean that you should be open to all sorts of scrutiny, and you know it's not like you're welcoming that kind of criticism.
1: Yeah, exactly. And there are just so many people who do that because you know they know that their faces can't be seen, and they don't review their real names, and they can just hide behind their keyboard oh it's horrible you know how people do that when they know that they're not being seen
0: yeah for sure and they think they're anonymous yeah scary yeah leading up to your departure from japan like do you feel like a lot of closure like are you excited to start this next chapter of your life
1: yeah i'm both excited and nervous as i said It's the longest I've ever been in one place. So in Tokyo I've been here for over seven years and I've never been in one place for so long in my life. So in a way I kind of feel like I need to move on. I think that's just because of how I grew up. I just feel like I need to to move to a different place just because I don't want to get too comfortable in one place. But also, you know, I'm sad of leaving because I, I was so comfortable and I really, really enjoyed Tokyo. And I have family here as well. I have two brothers living in Tokyo. And I'm really sad about, you know, leaving them and all of my friends in Tokyo. But at the same time, I'm super excited about starting a new life in Australia. I have other brothers living there. But I'm just really excited to experience a new location, you know, a new job, get back into my studies again. And I think excitement exceeds um, my nervousness, but I'm still, I don't know, I'm still feeling mixed emotions about it but I think I'm more excited yeah
0: yeah nice well I am sure you will do amazing in like your studies and whatever you choose to do next and like I thank you I don't think you will have a problem finding friends judging by how quickly (laughs) you made friends when you moved to Tokyo so (laughs) I don't think you have any worries there but yeah I do wish you all the best in your next chapter yeah
1: thank you so much for having me I really enjoyed I really enjoy your podcast I'm so (laughs) honoured to be a guest on your podcast thank you so much I really enjoyed it
0: thank you as always for listening and thank you to Iori for sharing her story what a unique journey she's been on so far As always, please rate, share and subscribe as well as follow along on Instagram. Just search for Not Your Token Minority Podcast. I'm always looking for interesting people to talk to for the show. So if you have a story that you would like to share, don't hesitate to send me a DM or email notyourtokenminoritypodcast at gmail.com.